election whisperer, I gave you guys a great nerd fest last podcast when I had David Muscrop on and we spoke about his book, Too Dumb for Democracy, and him being in Canada and I being in the U.S., we ended up veering off a lot into how institutions shape behavior and how Canadian institutions are producing better of behavior than down here in the U.S. So if you missed that, please go back and listen, because this conversation that I'm about to launch with the one and only Chris Bale, who is, um, I believe, the director of the Polarization Lab, right? That's right. That's right. Director, not just in there, but director of the Polarization Lab at Duke, which is one of my favorite things that exist in the world. When uh, I discovered it, I was like, oh, I wish I was smart enough to work at Duke. <laughs> uh, believe me, you might be surprised. <laughs> so um, anyway, he is a full professor there. He's in the sociology department in case anyone's interested. So uh, his training is a little bit different than mine, but he hung out with the King Gary um, uh, King <laughs> um, at Harvard and, and was trained a little bit under him. So he is well-versed in the poli-sci lit and uh, an expert in social media and polarization in particular. So the reason he's on here today is to talk about his brand new book, which is called Breaking the Social Media Prism. And it is a terrific read. I, I've read through every part of it. And I got to tell you, if you're interested in the topic of not only social media polarization, but how it really conflicts or interacts with human psychology and human behavior. It's another institution, basically, right? Um, then you should definitely pick up this book and take a read through it. It's very accessible. It's not written for, um, you know, the academy. It's written for the general public. So it's a very digestible read from Princeton Press. So it's a good, good book. Um, and I'm happy to say hello to you, Chris. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks so much. Thanks, thanks for the kind words about the book, too means a lot. Oh, just terrific. I mean, I, I knew it was going to be good the second that I saw it. This is an interest area, obviously, for myself. Um, you know, we talk a lot about the chicken and egg problem between social media and polarization, polarization and social media. Uh, it certainly is, you know, b going both directions, right? Absolutely. And yep. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, as you noted in the book, social media is here to stay. Right. And, uh, you know, to tie back in and the reason I, I want you, if you didn't hear last week's or last pod to go and listen to it, to understand, like the way that these social media um, things are set up are going to produce, I mean, uh, anonymity versus non, you know, people who have to use their names to interact, mm -hmm. um, the algorithms, the bots that these authors so deftly create and deploy to do their field experiments. All of those things are institutional designs that shape human behavior. And you just really can't understand human behavior without appreciating the institutions and roles in which it's operating. So, um, yeah. So anyway, Chris, instead of me doing it, how about you tell everybody the main thesis and like a uh, takeaway of the book, and then we'll get down into the weeds with it a bit. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, this book was really an attempt to bring research to bear on this this public conversation we're having about, you know, is social media driving polarization? And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, compelling ideas out there. Uh, the concept of the echo chamber, maybe it was foreign misinformation campaigns that polarized us, maybe it's the algorithms deep inside social media platforms that are polarizing us. But, you know, after scrutinizing each of those ideas with a heck of a lot of research over, over many years, I've come to conclude that the real problem is us. It's, it's the people using the social media platforms and really fixing the problem is going to require understanding key insights about human behavior um, in addition to those kind of top-down conversations that we're having about how social media platforms can change. Yeah, actually, that's really great. I'm really, I like the way that you've, um, you know, 30,000 foot um, view of, of what your research really tells the story of, right? It's great and not great, right? Because it would be easy if we could just say, oh, you know, F Facebook, Twitter, go fix this problem. But, you know, the fact that we're all part of it, you know, it ma makes it a little daunting, I think, too. But it also means that we collectively can, can you know, change the course. We have the power to do that. Yeah, it just means that it's going to it's like everything I've been arguing in terms of our democratic 
problems, uh, more broadly speaking. They're not something necessarily that we can go top down to fix. We're going to have to go bottom up. And that, by the way, is a much harder solution because you have, you know, the problem of there are 330 million of us, right? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. So top down is nice because you're you're talking about Congress or the courts or some kind of institution or the Constitution. But here we're talking about the people. Exactly. But, you know, it, it is 300 million, but it's important to point out that, you know, who's talking about politics on social media is this tiny sliver of the population. So the the data point that always blows my mind is that about 73% of tweets about politics are generated by just 6% of Twitter users. And, you know, those 6% of Twitter users have really strong views. And so what does that mean? It means that the gap between social media and real life has has never been bigger and it also means that, you know, we tend to misperceive how polarized everyone is. And that's why, you know, one of the main arguments of this book is that the biggest problem we face is not that we're in echo chambers. The, the biggest problem is that we there's this huge monumental and growing gap between what we're seeing online and, and what's happening offline. That's absolutely right. And, you know, it actually kind of underlies some of the stuff I'm bringing to bear. My efforts with Strike Pack, which, you know, I find myself in this weird position where I'm creating a super PAC to try to help save democracy by using some of the tools that destroy it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah. Jiu-jitsu. So, but yeah. Yeah. It is. It is some jujitsu yeah. shit, isn't it? <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, I call it the dark arts. Right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, when we're, we're thinking about, um, you know, the distortion effect, I always try to tell the people on my feed, look, if you are following me or anything political, you're a freak of nature. Yeah, you're a weirdo. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> right. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right or a moderate, right? Because right. there are moderates that uh, moderation and um, interest are two different things, exactly. right? Because it's really about interest in politics that drives that. Like, and, and um, you know, the fundamental, one of the seven deadly sins Democrats make in electioneering is the assumption that everyone's like us, right? Exactly. exactly <laughs> and they yeah. all know everything that Donald Trump did in office. And they right. are, so you don't have to hit the big thing because, you know, everyone already knows right, these everyone's big things. Reading the and New York that's, Times, right. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. And it's totally wrong because yeah. actually most people have no idea about this or that, right? right. They don't pay attention to the news at all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let alone on social media. Exactly. So, yeah. So the book goes in and it starts off, right? And it's, you know, it's talking about these prisms, this prism effect of social media that you just alluded to. Um, and you know, you guys launch some experiments and there's, so, there's several different experimental components of your book. So I, I want to jump right into the first one so I can get to all of them in our pod. And that first one is to see what happens. So like, um, I, I don't know if you will remember this and I can't remember the guy's name, but there was a big deal a while back when a YouTube, the guy who created the YouTube algorithm mm-hmm. to, um, you know, it puts you like if you like something, it pushes you to other things that you like. Mm-hmm. He came out and said, look, you know, this thing I've created is like a monster. It's like when the guy that created Keurig cups realized he had made an environmental disaster. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, he's like, I've created this thing that forces like, that that um, is naturally pushing people into you know, these echo chamber chamber rabbit holes, right? Especially in terms of conspiracy theories, which is a little bit different and a little bit more like niche than what we're talking about here more broadly. Um, So, you know, he he came out after he left YouTube and he started to put pressure on YouTube about this algorithm. And as far as I know, it's not been reformed, right? It's still basically like social media is designed to make you stay on social media. And as um, we're going about to find out from this first field experiment, you want to stay on things that are making you happy and comfortable. And when they're not, <laughs> you're going to see a reaction. So this first experiment is designed to say, okay, what happens when we take uh, you start off with one woman, I think her name's Patty, mm-hmm. and she's like a she's a Democrat, like by 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 what 
political scientist would call political socialization. She was raised as a Democrat. She mm -hmm. thinks of herself as a Democrat. Even though she says she's an independent, she leans Democrat, so she's a Democrat. And she doesn't have these particularly, you know, strong views. And she's even a little bit um, receptive to Trump in, in, to begin the experiment, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you, you have another person named Janet, right? And Janet is uh, the opposite of Patty. Exactly. She's a, a hardcore partisan. She pays attention to politics. So she's got a lot of strong views and she's only digesting right-wing media even coming in to the experiment. Why don't you tell everybody what happens in that experiment? Yeah. So, you know, of course, what we want to happen when we step outside our echo chamber and what common wisdom would suggest should happen is that we should all moderate our views, you know, so we've all heard this story, you know, you just you just described some of it, you know, that we are trapped in these kind of ideological echo chambers or some some people call them filter bubbles. And the idea is that we we get a kind of myopia, we can we can only see one side to the story, or maybe we don't humanize each other and, and so on. And it, it's a really compelling story, especially when it's told by people who helped, you know, build the platforms and now sort of regret their actions and are, and are kind of whistleblowing this stuff. So, you know, we in 2017, when we started this this study, thought that if you take people outside their echo chambers, that you should see some moderation. And so we we did we did two studies. The first one was a big study of about 1200 people, and we asked them all sorts of questions about their political views. And these questions allowed us to place them on a liberal to conservative scale. And then about a week later, we invited half of them to follow a Twitter bot that we created that would expose them to 24 messages a day. We didn't tell them what the bot was going to tweet about. Um, but eventually, the bot started to retweet messages by people from the other party. And by people here, I mean politicians, journalists, media organizations, even advocacy groups. For one month, people are seeing 24 messages a day. At the end of the month, we send them the same survey. And that lets us try to answer this question. What happens when you, you know, begin to step outside your echo chamber for a month? And so unfortunately, we saw no evidence of moderation. Um, most people instead became more polarized when we took them out of their echo chamber. And so that was, you know, that was horrendous. You know, we, the, yeah. the Duke polarization lab increases polarization is not a headline any of us, any of us wanted to see. So we spent, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out why that happened. And that's how we met these two women that you just mentioned, uh, Patty and Janet. And they were part of an, a follow-up study where, you know, once we had observed this trend from 30,000 feet, we wanted to really get to know the people in the study and, and um, you know, how they were experiencing this. And, you know, both of these women, despite being completely different, as you as you describe, right, one is a hardcore Trump booster on Twitter all the time. The other one, you know, avoids politics at all costs, is sort of a Democrat, but, you know, really not that enthusiastic about politics. So did either of them moderate their views? No. Um, once again, we saw both of them, uh, you know, engaging in real, you know, partisan warfare. And, and when you think about it, you know, and when you begin to think about it, I, you know, I'd encourage your audience to think about, you know, the last time that you encountered someone with opposing views on social media, were you kind of calmly considering their ideas and the merits of their argument? Or were you really kind of, you know, defending your side and going on the offensive towards the other side? In other words, we want social media to be a competition of ideas. You know, people like Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey, that's that's their vision, right? That that social that social media at its best should be, should create a competition of ideas. But what we saw is that it's creating a competition of identities. Yes, very well put, right? And and um, you know, so in terms of our hardcore partisan you know, it, it turned her even into a more aggressive, like, warrior for her side, right? Exactly. But for me, the really interesting part, so it didn't cure extremism. She was an extremist, and it didn't cure her. Exactly. <laughs> it made her more extreme, right? But the more interesting finding was what happens to a, you know, fairly apolitical, indifferent, moderate. Most moderates, independents, if, you know, they even if they lean, they tend to be in those categories for a reason. They don't have strong passion about politics or not interested in it right so but this woman you know who had been kind of i would almost say like gradually 
like she she could have been a realigner, right? Like she might be one of those work, uh, white working class, non we see this big realignment between college educated whites and non college educated whites. And she she felt like when I first started reading the the paragraph about her, I was like, oh, she's a realigner. And then, but but as it turns out, because she gets exposed, or you know, when she gets exposed to right wing information, it reinforced her latent partisanship. And it did two things that were really fascinating, especially for someone who's delving into the dark arts, right? It made her more likely to care about politics, which is the most important thing. And it made her return or like identify more fully with her latent predispositions, right? So that was interesting. Very, very interesting finding to me. <laughs> So, um, all right. So you guys move on, though. And, and some, some of this research in here is just amazing. It's a real testament to the uh, value of what we call mixed methods research, because you guys start to combine this quantitative analysis and then this, these individual level or case study analyses. And it's just um, it's so well done. So I want to give you guys a shout out on that and also talk about the value of that right <laughs> oh it's it, you know so. it, it it's enormously humbling you know i i came up in a generation of researchers you know where you know we had leveraged these new tools from data science to try to you know use twitter to understand you know human behavior and you know five or six years ago there was a whole group of us you know kind of saying you know, well social science has its telescope now you know we can we can really answer the big questions and then we just fell spectacularly on our heads, you know, like just, you know, it, it became overwhelmingly clear that, you know, nobody's going to forecast elections using Twitter data and nobody's going to, you know, and, 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 and again, this gap between real life and, and online life, you know, became so critical to what we discovered. And we simply couldn't have, couldn't have, um, you know, uncovered that without actually, actually meeting people and doing these case studies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it, it kind of we're going to move into the story about uh, this guy named Ray that you talked to. Oh, Ray. And it yeah. reminds me so much of the book, um, you know, Everybody Lies. Yeah. Right. Uh -huh. I can't, uh, and, it, and it's about the disconnect between what people report to survey researchers and what Google search behavior data tells us people are up to online. So so why don't you tell. All right. Before before you do that, though. Right. We're, we we. You're, you're, you're moving into some additional analyses because you're so fascinated, right, about these findings. And so um, you, you talk about in-group favoritism and how, you know, if people have a identity, a collective identity, before they're introduced into conflict or when they're introduced into conflict, it'll be pretty contentious. But if they are allowed to form interpersonal relationships before collective identity is formed or imposed on them, it, you know, the research from way back in the 50s shows, you know, that the they won't have that same tribalism emerge, right? But we, of course, don't live in that world, especially now. We live in a world where we are segmented by geographic location, the, um, you know, the diversity of things you can do in 2021 is much greater. I mean, they even have smash rooms where you can go vent your emotions and beat things up, right? Uh, I didn't have that in the 50s. You could do bowling. You could <laughs> you know, have too many choices. So, um, so all right. So you introduce this new experiment, and you're and you're trying to find out how much disconnect is there between these people's metadata, which you have, and what they're telling you about their social media habits. What do you learn? That's right. So, you know, we 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 met this guy who I'll call Ray and, you know, just the nicest guy. I mean, polite, deferential, goes out of his way to, you know, to criticize racist people, says, you know, all these people on social media, you know, they're so horrible to each other. You know, probably if you if you got to know them, they're, they're probably just losers who live with their mother. Right. Yeah. So, so I'm thinking, okay, you know, it's a reasonable guy. Let's, you know, let's go check out his Twitter data. And I was shocked to discover that this is like the most prolific troll I've ever seen in my life. And I mean, I've been studying, you know, social media and extremism for 10 years. So hopefully that means something. But I mean, just meme after meme of, you know, horrific, you know, Photoshop pictures of, you know, every, uh, every major Democratic leader, Nancy Pelosi, Alexandria. Ocasio-Cortez, you know, Barack Obama, racist, vile, you know, just even disgusting, yeah. right? 
And so I'm thinking, you know, this can't, this can't be the same guy. Like, there's no way, you know, we messed up the data merging and we go back, you know, two or three, four or five times. And this is the guy, uh, you know, he is turning from Dr. Jekyll into Mr. Hyde every night. And, you know, the, the fascinating question, um, of course, is why, why would anybody do this? You know, what, what is this guy, what, you know, why is, why is he spending hours each night meticulously Photoshopping pictures and then being someone completely different the next day? And the answer, you know, was, was really interesting. So when we got to know him more and compare the demographic data that we had from our survey firm about him, we discovered that Ray is a social outcast who, wait for it, lives with his mom. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, right? And, and it's like, you know, he, it, it, okay, so why, right? He's, he's a Republican guy. Uh, he, work, he lives in a liberal city. He works in a liberal profession. And, you know, social media really is the only way that he's deriving social status um, in his life, you know, and and this is really where we get into the meat of the argument in this book and, and what I think we all need to be thinking more about. You know, we want social media to be about going out and getting information or maybe occasionally persuading each other. But really what social media is helping us do is something that is just a basic human instinct. And that is, you know, each day we we kind of we get up and knowingly or unknowingly, we start presenting different versions of ourselves. You can kind of think of it like experimenting on our identities each day. And we look for clues in our social environment about which one of those identities are working. You know, do, do people like me when I'm like this? Right. And again, this could be an unconscious or conscious process. And then we tend to cultivate, lean into those, you know, identities that make us feel good about ourselves and maybe most importantly, that give us a sense of social status. And so when you think of what social media is doing to us, I think what's really interesting is to think about how social media changes the way we can experiment on our identities. And I think there's basically two ways. One is that we have unprecedented flexibility to present different versions of ourselves, right? You know, I can be a, uh, you know, a five foot one, you know, swimmer from Korea if I want to be on social media, um, even though no one would believe that in, in, in real life. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I could be fully anonymous on some platforms. So we have unprecedented flexibility. But then on the other hand, we have these much more efficient means to track what other people think about us, things like likes, follower counts, mm -hmm. instantaneous feedback. Now we know that that, you know, there's, you know, you know, that's not a an, necessarily an accurate, dis, you know, depiction of what other most people think, right? It's only certain people that are liking and following, but we tend to use that feedback to adjust our identities. And in the case of Ray, I think this is exactly what happened. You know, he started experimenting with some extreme stuff, got a little more extreme, got more good feedback, you know, uh, good in quotes, of course. And, you know, and, and just continued each night to the point where, you know, he's he's testing the, the, the limits of, of trolling each night um, because it just gets more and more and more and more engagement, more and more likes and, and right. more and more new follows. Yes, that's exactly right. So, like, I talk a lot about uh, what I call fear capitalists, right? And they can be in the media, they could be on social media, uh, radio, whatever, right? So, like, you get two types of programming in the political world, right? You get, like, the, the hard information type things, right? which is my Twitter feed largely, right? You're going to get wonky, weird political science stuff Super uh, weird. you're not going to get yep. extremism right yep. mm -hmm. um and you're not going to hear conspiracy theories and you know the people who peddle conspiracy theory stuff like oh all the voting machines in kentucky are flipping votes or whatever right on the left or on the right it doesn't matter because electoral machine uh flipping is a common conspiracy in both sides like vaccinations um those people generally have two to three times the number of followers that i do right because that extremism community creates this feedback loop of self-affirmation. So when I got to your quote about how it allows people to reform their identities and test different identities, when they do that, there's a good segment of people, even people who might actually not, you know, present to, um, you know, a, you know as, a, as a potential internet troll, <laughs> it gives them this, this it, it nudges them towards towards more outlandish behaviors um which you've got to think like i mean I, I i don't know i'm sure ray understands like how to talk to a 
professor in a polite situation, right? But, you know, when you're engaging in, in a role play like that, it you would think it, it is going to affect your psyche, right? So, you know, it isn't necessarily always going to be regulated, right, <laughs> to, to that internet uh, behavior. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, I think you have another guy in the in the study, or maybe he's the same one that moved from Fort Collins and was so lonely because uh, he, you know, the book alludes that he got pushed out economically by gentrification in Colorado, and now he's living in this crappy motel in Nebraska, and ha- and you know he doesn't have any other outlet, right? And you know if you're if you're just kind of engaged in wonky or benign conversations um you know and you're not one of the moderates that flee because you talk about you know we'll talk about how moderates are not engaging in political discussion online um but if you're not one of those moderates that flee because you really like politics or you you keep engaged you know you're not going to get that same affirmation um that same like i i would i guess i would call it like contact high (laughs) literally literally a contact high, right yeah and (laughs) yeah exactly and you know the important thing is you know like i'm not saying that we all have a little bit of ray in us you know and that we all don't you know have the potential to troll most people right like most people posting about politics on social media is a liability you know it it doesn't give them status it's it's costly so the story that sticks out in my mind of all the the characters and in, in case studies in the book is this young woman who I call Sarah, and Sarah's you know a moderate conservative. She's uh, you know, but but she's complex. She's got a uh, she's from New York City. She's got a dad who was a police officer. She's half Puerto Rican. Uh, she went to an Ivy League school, so she's conservative, but she has you know very nuanced views and can can talk to liberals in productive ways. But you'd never, ever hear her talk about politics on Twitter. And, and here's why. She she told us when we first met her, you know, well, you know, uh, about a month ago, I was up late on, you know, just got my kids to sleep, was, uh, you know, arguing uh, or sorry, retweeting a, a message from the NRA about, you know, it's Americans rights to own guns. And, you know, she, she maybe replied with a little bit of encouragement, you know, saying her husband is a responsible gun owner. And then she says, you know, within minutes... Uh, her feed was lit up with with replies from people who had apparently discovered that she had kids from looking at her Twitter feed and then said, you know, we hope your kids find your gun and shoot you. Right. And, you know, like, yeah. unfortunately, huh. this this Jeez. kind of experience is just all too common. You know, Pew, the, the Survey Research Center, recently reported uh, that the number one reason people are harassed online is for their political views now. So, this story is all too common. And for someone like her, who has a very happy life offline, you know, great kids, good job, comfortable lifestyle, what, you know, what do you get out of uh, tweeting about politics? You're not getting the kind of status that that, that guy Ray, uh, you know, who we were just talking about is getting. It's all risk. You know, it's it's making. Yeah, yeah. And it's from both sides. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're yeah. not making the extremist. I mean, you know, as, and this certainly relates to my own Twitter. <laughs> you're not making extremist happy on either side. Exactly. Right. So you so you yeah. may even get ratioed off the same tweet from both exactly. directions. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The middle, the middle yeah. is not a friendly place to be, especially on Twitter. You know, <laughs> you know and maybe it makes Thanksgiving dinner weird, you know, or, or maybe yeah, it just makes right. the next, you know, family encounter weird. And so. There's all sorts of reasons why moderates are disengaging, but this is probably the most powerful consequence of what I call the social media prism, right? So we've got people like Ray. These are these are the majority of people, to, you know, posting about politics, and we tend to misunderstand them as representative of the other side. So if you know yes, you've ever heard, yes. you know found yourself wondering like, are there any other you know reasonable people on the other side? The answer is yes, you know, but they're more like the Sarahs and, and, and of course, less like the Rays, the, the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde guy that we were just talking about. And, and there's a powerful incentive for them to hide, right? So, exactly. like, uh, you, you talk about... And this is this is um, this is something I think everybody observed in their own lives, right? So Donald Trump runs for president, unexpectedly wins. Mm-hmm. America moves into the late fall of 2016 into winter of twenty seventeen, and then we have what I call the the great unfriending, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where like all everybody basically comes down to like, okay, I can't hang, I can't hang with this guy on Facebook anymore because yeah. he's posting blah right it might be from 
anti-Trump stuff or pro-Trump stuff. But either way, we see this big sort happen on social media. And the and this is also around the time where these social media sites are losing people, too. Some people are not just unfriending, they're disengaging entirely because of, you know, the role Facebook played in, in helping Trump and da-da-da-da-da. So, so the social media companies respond by saying, okay, you know, do you like posts like this, right? Mm-hmm, right. And so, you know, if you're a more moderate person, you're not me, so you're not a political junkie, mm-hmm. and you've been looking at your relatives fighting, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and you don't want to hear it from either side, you know? Yeah. You are telling Facebook, no, I don't like this stuff. And so the algorithm silos us further away right to you know i I know that like the people that i see on facebook are very different now than they were a few years ago and i didn't do have to do a whole lot of unfriending because i've never really attracted too many you know crazy people but you know it's definitely the content has definitely siphoned itself to make me happier right right? right. more more cute cats less yeah more cute cats more food pictures and politics has really decreased right so um yeah it was pretty interesting now i I, i've been meaning to ask you you know with your your mad skills on this social media analysis world like i I would be interested to know if there's asymmetry because a lot of times there is asymmetry in polarization work right you even find some i know because the extremist so just for everyone to have full info the extremist in his study um, when they were exposed to the other side there was a there was an asymmetric effect hardcore partisan republicans had a a strong effect and democrats had a a non-significant effect and you allude to the fact that maybe you needed a bigger study size but it's pretty common that we see see asymmetry and that's for reasons of the coalitions of the two parties one is almost all white all ideologically conservative (laughs) and it has this effect um and and the party talks to it differently uh so the environment and the right-wing media so um but yeah it was interesting that you saw that um you know that asymmetric effect and i'm wondering have you ever looked and this is not something you cover in the book but have you ever looked to see was the great unfriending asymmetric or did each side unfriend each other at the same rate you know, it's hard to say. I mean, the data is so hard to get, especially on Facebook. It, there is some, there is a lot of evidence, as you said, that that polarization is asymmetric, and we can look at, you know, far outside social media for evidence of that things like, you know, how legislators vote, and uh, you know, whether you know, Democratic politicians are more likely to compromise with Republicans than the other way around. We certainly see evidence of that. But, you know, some of the latest studies actually, you know, a study just came out last week about YouTube that says that now conservatives are actually more likely to reach across party lines on YouTube, whatever that means. I mean, you know, we, we, we need to drill down into the, the, the type of engagement. The study, though, by the way, finds that Republican comments are no more toxic than liberal con- content. So, But I, I think the answer is we don't know yet. What I think is the, the, the really fascinating thing about um, our result, you know, where we did see that Republicans became much more polarized than Democrats, you know, why? And I think you put your finger on it when you said, you know, ideologically consistent, you know, and, and identity, right? If, if we're all doing this partisan warfare thing and we're really out to defend our identities, then, well, Republicans just have a much more coherent identity to, to defend, um, you know, that... You know, they experience an attack on someone like Trump as an attack upon themselves in a way that a lot of Democrats might not because we have such a uh, a bigger tent on, on the left in the United States. So, you know, for me, it's really congruent with, you know, the broader story about identity. And, and maybe when we get into solutions later, I want to tell you about some new evidence that we have that shows, um, you know, taking away identity can actually um uh, depolarize Republicans more than Democrats. That's not something that oh, I was able cool. to get into the book, but love okay. to tell you about that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, so we're going to get to the solution section, but first, before we do that, um, I just on on what you were just talking about, um, you know. So for people who aren't familiar with the political science literature, uh, as we move out of the '90s, there's this question, right? This book comes out by a big name political science um, scientist named Morris Fiorina, and it says "culture war?" question mark And it looks at survey data. And it's like, look, people are, you know, everything 
everything's bell-shaped curves still, right? Um, the most common opinion is moderation. There's no real difference in self-reported moder- um, ideology over time. And it kind of kicks off this debate that goes on for about a decade as to whether or not there's polarization in the public. And within that, you know, because of that research, we get in and we find a whole bunch of of what I call mechanical nuisance, um, a nuance to how polarization works. And one of those is this thing called party sorting, where in the in the geographic realignments of the parties where the Republican Party was once based in the Northeast and the West starts to move to the South as its power base. And of course, the Mountain West, um, you know, and the, the so too, we see this ideological sorting where conservatives become pretty much sorted into the Republican Party. There was liberal uh, Republicans previously. And you, I mean, you could argue there's a couple hangers on there and these two, uh, you know, blue state governors. But by and large, liberals become uniformly conservative or uh, democratic. And in my dissertation, which is, of course, time bound, it's it's it was written at a time when there's there's still a debate as to whether the public is polarizing. That debate's been settled. Now we can see polarization in the public, both in terms of issue polarization, uh, not self-identified ideology so much because you can't um, people aren't very good at estimating their own ideology or as as you just alluded to other people's but in terms of their issue preferences you really start to see the value of presenting data by party and not like the the lump sum right yeah. at least i do right yep. mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's because it's like night and day a lot of times and I mean, there are some issues as you point out in your book where you know there's a surprising chunk of republicans that favor gun control these are largely women suburban women um and there is a surprising amount of democrats that are bearish on abortion a lot of these could be deeply religious um you know, uh, African-Americans um, and, and people like that. But by and large, you have this ideological consistency. And so I was arguing at that time period, which was, you know, 2014, 2015, it's that it's it, it's a necessary condition, right? First, you have to have consistency. And that's what the Pew polarization in the public study really showed when they were looking at consistency of views that were liberal or conser- conservative. Um, but once you get that, I argue, then the outer bands start to get pushed out because there's no there's no moderating force, right? There's no a need to compromise internally intra-party, right? And then that causes those bands to start to stretch out. Of course, you know, the institutions play Exactly. A lot I was going to say, you know, that, right? <laughs> with your lead-in with institutions, right, we have to remember that the, in, the incentive structures were changing too, you know, the incentives to take stronger and stronger party positions, things like, you know, the segmentation of cable news markets and all that. And, and this is why I think, you know, too often we just ask the question, you know, is social media responsible for polarization? And, and as you're so, you know, nicely pointing out, like, this is a this is a you know decades old process that that got us to where we are so you know everybody wants that simple answer but it's just not that easy to 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 work it all out no it's not in fact i mean that's a perfect segue to talk about your solutions right because it you know i came into this book um, you know, I hadn't had time to, to, to read much of the, you know, literature in, in terms of like newest um, research out on it. But I kind of came in with hope, okay, wait, maybe if we do screw with these algorithms a little differently, and start to expose people, I mean, I think there's two things. And one of them, you, your book looks at and answers definitively that it probably it, it won't help and might and probably almost certainly would hurt. <laughs> And that is exposing people who are Republicans to Democratic information and vice versa, right? Well, we, um, we but to, the, I think we have to think about the type of exposure. So, you know, I don't yeah. want people to feel like, oh, I just go back to my echo chamber forever. That's not the way out. But the, the idea is I want people to be reflective about how they're stepping outside their echo chamber and, right. and use technology to help them find, you know, non-polarizing people on the other side. That's, that, that's really key. Yeah, well, I mean, when when you guys and this is something I couldn't really glean out of the the summation in the book. So, like, all right, you have this big data set. You've got all these people's metadata on Twitter. Um, my assumption was that actually, like, all right, were you able to get down? Because so, so, like, all right, let's say, um, you know, Janet from the first 
first study. She gets 24 tweets a day, right? And it was from a variety of, as you said, influencers or, or journalists or whatever. Some of it, so in other words, she was exposed to moderate information from the other side or, you know, if you're getting shit from the Heritage Foundation or um, one of these, um, you know, progressive uh, hosts, it's going to be pretty inflammatory, right? right? Yeah. So um, did you see if there was a difference, like, and, and I know you have a term for this you call yeah. it um the latitude, latitude of acceptance exactly, that's it yeah. <laughs> i love that right so if you could yeah for the listeners purpose yeah. and because i don't want people to feel like okay now there's no point so to explain to them what the latitude of acceptance is sure. and how you lay out each person listening to this and their own orbits of influence their family their friend could tell people this is how you become less extreme. Right. So first of all, I would love to take credit for the latitude of acceptance, but it's actually Carolyn, Carolyn Sharif's idea. She was a social psychologist in the 1960s. And essentially the, the idea is that, you know, there's a range of ideas that I can, you know, possibly be persuaded by or that I can at least agree to disagree with. And then there's these ideas, typically more extreme ideas, that I just can't even engage with. And if I engage with them even worse, it's going to make me more polarized. And so what we found is that, you know, these people who were looking at these tweets, you know, they were never engaging with the moderate, you know, content on the other side. They focused immediately and almost instinctively on the, you know, extreme attacks on their side's identity. They were just focused on the extremes. So what, you know, the intuition of this idea, the latitude of acceptance is that, you know, what we need to do is is tune each each person's kind of echo chamber so that we're we're filtering out the extremists and boosting the moderates on the other side. And and then we might see a curvilinear effect of of stepping outside your echo chamber. So if you expose yourself to moderates on the other side, you might become more moderates. If you expose yourself to extremists on the other side, then you might become more extreme. So the challenge is, you know, how do you, you know, looking at social media, and again, you know, I encourage your listeners to think, you know, last time you encountered someone from the other party, did they seem like a reasonable person or is some kind of crazy extremist? And, uh, and I'll bet for most people, it's, it's a crazy extremist, right? So the first challenge is to learn to see the social media prism, to learn to see how social media fuels these status-seeking extremists and mutes moderates. And we have a few tools one of the things we were really excited to do for this um, this kind of whole project, the Polarization Lab at Duke, is to really move from, you know, saying, oh, you know, we all just need to be more aware and, you know, be better, better informed. You know, a lot of books like mine might end with, you know, a bunch of self-helpy advice about how to, you know, be more democratic, right? But we all know that that's hard. And we wanted to offer people tools, you know, use some of the tools of data science that we use to do the research to inform some of the solutions. And so if your listeners go to polarizationlab.com, they'll see that we have a series of tools that can help you identify and avoid extremists, um, learn how your own social media uh, posts make you seem to other people in terms of your politics so you can get a score on you know, how liberal or conservative your tweets are, see, see where you fall on this continuum. But then the tools that I'm most excited about are the ones that try to boost moderation. So, you know, we know right now that many of the algorithms on social media sites are optimizing for engagement. When you optimize for engagement, you get a bunch of extremists liking each other and everybody else retreats, right? So we actually created this bipartisanship leaderboard, which actually tracks using this large sample of Twitter users that we have, who's actually gaining traction on both sides. And then we built bots that retweet these people. So you can actually, you know, tune your own social media feed using these bots, which we call Polly, uh, to, um, to, to kind of step outside your echo chamber in the right way. Which I just think is fantastic. In fact, I was like, oh, I got to go and, and try that out. Yeah. <laughs> and that, and all those tools, by the way, if you're listening to this and you're interested, all you got to do is is Google up polar, Polarization Lab and you can add Duke if you want to, but I don't think you need to. And you'll get right to it. And I and I know at their homepage, they have uh, uh, several icons. And I think one of them is tools, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you would go to tools and, and mess around there and it will uh, measure your ideology based on your Twitter content and other cool things like that is really uh, great stuff, you know. So so back to the latitude of acceptance. Right. So that tells me. All right. So 
you know, and one of the things that we, we, we I think, you know, it's kind of inferred, it's not explicitly stated in the book, is that the, the more a person is exposed to an attack of an elite that they believe in, the more likely they are to respond, right? So like a lot of the people in their qualitative analysis part where they're talking about the interviews, the things that they choose to mention to the researchers, or at least the researcher chooses to highlight for the book, are things that, you know, I was fine and then they came after Obama, or I was fine and then they came after Trump, right? And it just made me think about tribalism and, and our team identity, you know, and now I'm going to, I'm going to push you into this like interesting conversation just because I never when I get to talk to somebody who's super uber smart, I like to I spend a little time on philosophy. Oh, right. Sure. So, OK, you know, we had we had this time period, you know, we, ha- we had the founding time period of, of the Republic and we get this separation of power system and checks and balances. And, um, you know, a lot of the ideological, philosophical um, you know, argument that Madison, James Madison, who's a, who is, by the way, one of the chief authors of the Constitution, he does, he's the one that kind of designs that separation of power system we all know and love. Um, but they sell it in these in these pamphlets called the Federalist Papers. If you ever have to suffer through Intro to American Government 101, you'll read Fed 10 and, and Fed 51. 51 lays out the separation of powers argument as, as to how it will keep tyranny at bay, basically. Um, uh, and, and he meant ty- tyranny the majority, <laughs> ironically. All right, now we're at more of a ty- tyranny of a minority going tyranny on. Tyranny 2.0, um, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but the reason is because in Fed 10, you know, Madison's talking about this problem that plagued in, in – basically this is Enlightenment period, right? So Enlightenment period – devolution from monarchy to other forms or even thinking of other forms of government comes upon this problem called factionalism quite a bit, right? Okay, what do you do because of in-group, they didn't have this language, but in-group favoritism. And, you know, if I'm a Catholic, I'm going to advance Catholic interest. I'm a Protestant. I'm going to advanced Protestant interests that, of course, would be, you know, uh, the UK and and Ireland, right? Um, You know, but any group has, like, you know, so if I'm black, I'll have my own um, identity there, white, woman, male, um, working class, professional class. There's tons of people have multiple identities, too. But, you know, Madison argues in those at that time period, look, factionalism isn't the impediment to self-government that it was in these early democracies. Because, you know, we talk about the American experiment as the first democracy, but there were other attempts at self-government that were very similar to, you know, ours. And uh, he says, okay, look, the reason that it will work in America is because we're populating, of course, we're colonizing and murdering the native populations, but we're we're populating this this landmass with people from all over the place. And they're bringing with them many different identities and factions and it will make it hard for them to collapse, right? And and to like come up with like a, a factional dominant faction that, that you know, it, it imposes tyranny on the others, right? So if you fast forward, I mean, it works really well, actually, for a long time, right? Um, but... I mean, really, even even up and through the 1970s. But then we start to look at technology coming along. We have, you know, these couple of uh, uh, several different things all come hit the country at once. We have the technological revolution. um, And, you know, that leads from three channels on TV to cable, then to the Internet and right wing radio and all these different partisan outlets of information, right? The echo chambers that we're talking about today. But you also have changes in society, right? Because you didn't really need debates about abortion and the rights of women and the rights of African-Americans and gay people back in the 60s and 70s because the prevailing wisdom was, you know, I mean, the Republicans and Democrats kind of agreed. Nobody should have an abortion. Women should be at home cooking, you know? So you get, um, you know, the emergence of the egalitarian paradigm or era, and that's where conflict gets introduced on social issues, things that are more likely to incite people. So I'm kind of interested in your thoughts about this factionalism problem, because I have argued, like, look, we do have all these different factions, but for all intents and purposes, we've seen the collapse of multiple factions into two, the tribes of Democrats and the left, and this would include leaners, right? And then the tribe on the right, which is the Republicans and their right leaners. And, um, you know, because in-group, 
favoritism is such a key component of your theoretical um, basis for your work. If you could talk about like what I mean, what can we do about de, you know, de-escalating or walking back this factionalism problem? Because at its heart, I mean, we were talking about public opinion data. You look at any any topic, and you're going to see. Republicans on one side, usually, right? Republicans on one side, Democrats on the other, uh, with very little exception. So what are your thoughts on factionalism and, and what, you know, what we might do? And it doesn't have to necessarily be a social media. Yeah, I, I think the one of the more concerning data points I've seen in the last, you know, few years is, is, uh, is that outgroup hate has come to displace in-group love when we think about politics. So, you know, we really care more about taking the other side down than, than boosting our own side, at least if we look at the types of, you know, attitude questions that political scientists look at, like feeling thermometers and stuff like that. And so, you know, that's really dangerous and toxic to to uh, to democracy. I think the, the challenge, you know, as you were kind of giving the, the, the historical, you know, um, perspective there, you know, and, and, you know, we could we could probably talk more about, well, you know, what was the role of race in the early, you know, years of the Republic? And to what extent is there a kind of a, you know, a, a, a fundamental question of race shaping politics right now? I, I, I personally think, you know, that's a, new, a critical debate um, and one that, uh, you know, gets gets kind of uh, complicated in the in the case of polarization. But, um, you know, one thing I think we know from research is that you don't change identities by kind of attacking them. You don't, you know, you don't, you, you, you don't kind of win over Republicans if you're liberals by, you know, using terms like white supremacist and, and racist. And, and on the other side, you know, you don't you don't win over Democrats by calling them unpatriotic or, or, or you know, all the other you know, snowflakes or whatever, whatever it is, you know. And what you can do, though, and, and this is something that, you know, I think is the perennial question in American politics, you can create new kinds of identities. You can create new kinds of status to try to to try to decouple, uh, you know, party from identity in interesting ways. And, you know, here is where I think we have the most opportunity. And of course, you know, in my work, I'm, I'm mostly focused on social media. But I think there's a real opportunity to say, OK, what if we optimized, uh, you know, social media status, not by preaching to the choir and, you know, getting more likes from your side, but what if your status was actually tied to your capacity to talk across partisan divides? You know, this is rare. Don't and don't get me wrong; it's not easy. You know, if your audience goes to the bipartisanship leaderboard, they're going to see a lot of people whose ideas they might not immediately like, right? But that's the hard part. That's the hard work of of democracy. But what if we can somehow, instead of you know de-incentivizing moderation, what if we can incentivize it? Um, you know, you can think of it. I, I'm so I'm a computer geek, but you know the the there's this website for computer coders called Stack Overflow, and Stack Overflow basically the way it works is you have a problem, you post about it, people vote about whether the problem is important, then other people come along and offer solutions, and then people vote on the solutions, and then the kind of the best solutions rise to the top, and the person who gets you know the most votes gets the most status in this community. And so I, I like to dream of a kind of social media that 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 uses those principles, you know, make it all about problem solving. You know, we, we've got a problem about the climate right now. We've got a climate about uh, we've got a problem about, you know, race and policing. We've got you know, we have no shortage of problems. But right now there's no space for particularly non non elite people to 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 really hash out those places in a place where there's really any incentive to do so. And so, you know, you you know. These are implementations. These are, you know, these are things that that Facebook and Twitter could could implement. Um, but short of that, you know, and and to the extent that social media sites come and go, I do think there's some potential for a new kind of social. You know, we see social media splintering every two or three years, right? You, you know, you and I probably remember MySpace, but some of your younger listen, listeners <laughs> probably don't, right? Um, and, you know, and right now it's Clubhouse and, you know, who knows what it's going to be two years from now. But I'm, I'm pretty certain there's going to be more splintering and more segmentation. Facebook won't go away. Of course, it'll be, a, you know, a strong monopoly for a long time. But will there be a place for where people can obtain status for actually having productive political conversations? 
I think it I think it's possible. Would everybody use it? Of course not. You know, but you already mentioned and, and you and I both know that, you know, it's this small sliver of the population that really cares at all about politics anyways. So why not pl- create a place for them that's optimized for these types of productive conversations and gives people status and new kinds of identities for talking across party lines? Because if we stay on this course, this polarized course, the type of people who can actually produce bipartisan solutions, even though we might not like to think think of this, they're going to be the ones who have enormous value in our society. So, you know, maybe technology can help us get there. Yeah, because, you know, I think uh, some some people might be familiar with the concept of having a, like, a, you know, before the pandemic, it'd be in person, but now it'd be over Zoom, like these mixers, right, where, like, people who had different identities uh, or, or parties, but all, but but don't like the toxicity of of the, of the polarized era. We're getting together and and holding these like uh, you know conversations basically, right? To personalize each other, right? Develop a personal connection, and then be able to talk things through in a healthy environment. But it's scalability, right? So like, can social media, you know, can a platform, can a new company figure out a way to to make, you know, to make a, a space like that that would that people would want to use, and I think that's the biggest problem, right? And I, I think ultimately, it's an unfortunate fact about humans that we gravitate towards the the controversial, you know, crazy sounding stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and and you find that right. I mean, in your study, um, you know, a couple of these participants we're not so conspiracy laden until they get exposed to other you know the stuff from the other side and then they 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 come back and they're you know they're on um glenn beck you know or uh what's that guy's name alex jones level right (laughs) so you know it's it's like how do you how do you get people to want to use it and ultimately you know what i've been arguing for a while and through my time at niskanen center is that the only way to do that is is via like are changing our political culture at the ground level through children, right? And then generationally, like a seed, like planting a tree, you know, if we teach people two things, we teach them what you just talked about, how to engage in discourse in a proper way through that educational system. But also we, we socialize people in America to not that there's no responsibility with rights right like you don't so like the nobody pays attention to politics and very few people i mean even i mean money more vote than than really follow issues so they're using heuristics right um you know but that's partly because you're not raised in this country to to value civic engagement right and that's a culture thing because like you know in israel because they're under threat so much all the time from every corner right that that society's political culture i mean you, you could you could talk about things aspects of it that are not great right but one of the things that they do well is socializing israeli citizens to engage and to see like the value of the collective right so you know i think in america you know, many people, even who are college educated, are not reading the news, not paying attention, not voting. And that's because they were not taught as children. You, you, If you're getting stuff back from America, you have to give it back in terms of civic engagement because it's, it's, it is those moderate, pra- I mean, not even necessarily moderate, just pragmatic, decorous people that, um, you know, that we're missing and, and we need more of them to vote ultimately and to engage in social media. So what a great convo. And, and of course, like, let me talk a little bit before, you know, go, go off. I would like you to tell uh, people just a little bit about the polarization lab, more broadly speaking at Duke. I mean, is it, is it grant funded? What does it need to survive? Because it's just doing such important work. Yeah, we are, we are really trying to both do high quality research, but also then create, you know, act, you know, tr- technology that helps people implement insights from their research. And so we work with governments, nonprofits, social media companies, um, and we are we are trying right now. And, 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 you know, one thing I'd love to sneak into the to the end of this this podcast is we are trying to make our own social media platform for scientific research. And, and let me tell you why. So uh, a few years back, you know, Cambridge Analytica affair. This is the thing that that um, you know academic research was kind of repurposed or, or copied 
to uh, allow a political consulting firm to to use micro targeting for uh, you know uh, for the for the Trump campaign and and for the Brexit campaign. And after that, and some earlier controversies, you know, research on social media really began to shut down, especially on Facebook. And you know, we want to ask these questions about how do we fundamentally change social media to optimize for social cohesion and not for social division, which is what you know we think it's doing right now. But you can, you just can't go to Facebook and say, hey, could you you know uh, maybe try changing the echo chamber for a day, or could you you know suddenly make your platform anonymous for a day so that we can figure out whether it's you know anonymity is good or bad. And so what we decided to do is build a prototype. It's a social media platform that researchers can use to really control features of social media and ask a question that we don't ask enough, which is. You know, if we could redesign social media from scratch, you know, where should we begin? We've been content to accept, you know, platforms that were created to, for example, allow, you know, college students to rate each other's physical attractiveness to seamlessly transform into the <laughs> right. forum for, you know, American democracy and democracy around the world. That's that's bananas, you know. So let's let's think about how we might do that and and we've 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 done now one study which i describe in the last chapter of my book breaking the social media prism and that is to look at anonymity and you know you might be surprised to hear that because on the one hand there's uh, this guy ray and we have this story of how anonymity can allow people to hide and really do awful things that they never do in person on the other hand anonymity may allow us to focus on the content of ideas that we're encountering instead of the identities of the people who are uh, you know, who are voicing them in its in its best case. So, you know, we wanted to see which which one of these stories is, is right. Is it is, is anonymity a net bad or can it can it have some, you know, potential to allow people to kind of get past their identities and try to find consensus around issues. And so we paid a lot of people to take a survey and then we asked half of them if they'd want to earn some money to help us quote test a new social media platform. We later told them that they were, you know, participating in, in social science research. And, you know, what we discovered is people who engaged in anonymous uh, cross-party conversations. So we had Republicans talking to Democrats and vice versa. They didn't know they were going to do that when they came on the platform. They depolarized. Um, even when they were talking about, you know, really controversial issues like immigration and gun control. You know, and we had people really connecting with, you know, stories of individual experiences of, you know, of guns or immigration and the most interesting thing to me, you were saying earlier, you know, uh, you, know you, you asked about the asymmetric nature of polarization. And so in our first experiment where we paid people to follow the bots, we had seen that Republicans became more polarized. What we saw in this experiment is when we put Republicans and Democrats in this anonymous chat, anonymous social media platform, we actually saw Republicans depolarize twice as much as Democrats, um, suggesting to me anyways, that, uh, you know, this getting rid of your identity and getting outside the peer pressure of something like Twitter, where you're so immediately castigated for, you know, going against your team's, you know, position, maybe that's part of the solution uh, to, to get us out of this mess. Yeah, I thought that was a really fascinating. And, you know, I one of my favorite studies that I ever ran was an experiment using survey data where I manipulated the party that was proposing a policy <laughs> to see, you know, I mean, I knew it would move, right? I knew the heuristic is what matters, not the policy, right? And uh, I got inspiration for the whole thing from watching the backlash to Obamacare, which was really Romney care, but because it came from a Democrat and Obama and not Romney, it was <laughs> nice, you know, really, really like a uh, you know, violent reaction to it. And, and then the idea came back to me watching Ivanka Trump in the 2016 convention because she gave the speech and it was all about family leave uh -huh. and paid yeah. <laughs> and like the whole audience is Wait like cheering and I'm like you know, like yeah. dude the Republican Party's been blocking paid family leave for like yeah the, 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 but now because she's saying it they're all like yeah so so I, I I thought okay number one I don't want to do it gradiently I don't want to see like can I move it five points up a feeling thermometer I want to see if I can actually flip opposition to support off a heuristic and by, by how much and like so many other things. I mean, number one, it was by a lot. <laughs> 
like 40 points in some matter some 40 points yeah like and you know like many other things though and this ties back to what you have found is that the heuristic so and this might help you with your own study the heuristic mattered more to republicans across the board right they they needed that heuristic a little bit more than the other side of the aisle did or relied on it more and you know i all i i what i always focus on is the theoretical mechanism so i'm like okay if that's happening why right and i'm thinking it's it's got to be the difference in the media and information um, environments and we can see this in survey data you know from pew and others that look at media habits but you know republicans are very you know they they're very keen to use republican sources of information and democrats are more you know um, dispersed amongst different types of media, right? Um, so I, I kind of wonder, you know, if if that heuristic, because of the tone and tenor on a lot of the right wing stuff, is stronger because the elite signaling about, you know, the other side sucking. <laughs> is more strong on that side. I mean, you can get that from, there are left-wing um, outlets that you can get that from, certainly, right? But you also, you don't have to go there, right? There's really not, uh, the bulwark now that, that was built by Bill Crystal and and those guys, the, it's a, you know, by Never Trump Republicans, that would be like, like, like like a like a NPR right yeah. for the right <laughs> right 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 yeah <laughs> but other than that I can't really think of one right so I think it's like that that you know the more extreme echo chamber and I'm kind of interested in what you think on that to wrap up yeah I mean it, 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 there's so much here I mean we could you know we could we could keep talking about media and and politics forever I I, I agree though you know. One thing that sticks in my mind is like, you know, the extent to which we're currently weaponizing information, you know, new study coming out, um, looking at fake news and who shares it and why. And interestingly, they have the survey data, so they know all about people's personalities and, you know, and you might think, OK, well, the people who are sharing fake news are are kind of, you know, maybe not so bright or, you know, they don't have a lot of media literacy and what they found is actually that it just tends to be people sharing um, because of their partisan views. So, you know, you know, that it, that's the key driver. And and interestingly, that the authors also argue that this explains why Republicans are sharing more fake news than than Democrats, because like that's the only kind of negative content they have access to, you know, in the in the media landscape. Now, of course, you know that's a perceived, you know, uh, imbalance. And, and, you know, we could we could have a much longer conversation about whether it actually is media imbalance. But I think it suggests that, you know, like, really, everybody's just grasping for information to weaponize in this identity contest. And so, you know, certainly, certainly media elites all have a role in, in, in fomenting this problem. But I think it also, you know, we can't just say, hey, elites, stop being elites, you know, hey, media, stop profit, right? It's not going to work. And that's why I'm so passionate about this bottom up solution. You know, it's got to be part of the solution. Oh, it absolutely does. And man, I'm so grateful that you took the time to come on the pod and talk about this, you know, your book, um, uh, social media, uh, you know, because it is, it's, it's it, especially for younger generations. I mean, it's, it is, you're not going to stop people from using social media. People don't want to stop. Even when they try to stop, as you point out, a lot of them are like, I miss it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we, we like it and we, and it does a lot of good too. I mean, we didn't, we can't talk about that today, but you know, there's also good parts about social media, but you know, we do need, we need everybody who's capable of it working on this bottom up solution because it is it's harder it's harder to fix it's the hard work yeah and you know yeah yep. thanks so much for having me i you know this was really a thrill and an honor for me i you know love the podcast and and you know this has been one of the better conversations i've had about this book and you know i would love to connect with your listeners about the book or the tools on polarizationlab.com well, that's great. And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, we do a town hall thing. So, you know, maybe maybe we'll do one up. Oh, cool. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, mean, I think it's a lot of fun for people to be able to interact with the people I'm, I'm interacting with themselves, you know? Yeah. So, great. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure.